Hannah Staver, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends when you go out this weekend. Welcome back to another episode of Ohio Politics Explained, the post-Roe Ohio edition. This week, we're explaining what abortion access looks like in Ohio one year after the Dobbs decision, why Nazis keep showing up to protest drag events, what kinds of medical care transgender minors could access under a Republican plan, and why Democrats got behind a piece of medical freedom legislation. Joining me at the end of this very busy news week is reporter Haley B. Miller. Hello, good to be here. So our first topic is the one-year anniversary of the landmark Supreme Court decision that ended federal protections for abortion. Our colleague Jesse Balmert zeroed in on the 82 days after that decision came down because that's when Ohio's heartbeat bill was in place and almost all abortions were illegal after about six weeks of gestation. Yeah, that was such a chaotic time. I mean, for the entire country, but also Ohio, you had the Supreme Court decision come down and then within moments that felt like Ohio's heartbeat bill took effect. Um, Attorney General Dave Yost went to court to get the block on that lifted. And I think even he was surprised by how quickly they responded. Yeah, I mean, it it was fast and unleashed a lot of confusion over those 82 days. People didn't know what the laws were. Abortion clinics had to very suddenly change or cancel appointments that they may have already had in place. And then there were also questions about which states that providers could send patients to, because as Ohio's laws were changing very quickly, so were laws in neighboring states. Yeah. And then in late September, a judge in the Cincinnati area uh, put that law on pause, putting abortion back to about 21 weeks gestation. That case is still working its way through the Ohio Supreme Court. But, you know, in this year, we've also seen then the start of what is likely to be a ballot initiative to codify abortion access here in Ohio's constitution. We may vote on that in November. And as Haley's been covering, there is a push to stop that or cut it off at the pass by making it harder to amend the state's constitution in August. Yeah, we're really at a fork in the road, it feels like, with abortion access in Ohio. I mean, the state Supreme Court, whenever they make a decision on this case, which, you know, is is still some months away, I think, given the makeup of the court now, it's likely that they would rule in favor of Attorney General Dave Yost and reinstate Ohio's abortion law, you have four conservative judges that make up the majority on the state Supreme Court now. But as you noted, this ballot initiative is a potential path for November and abortion advocates have been working really hard to gather a surplus of signatures so that they can get this on the ballot. So it seems like they're in a pretty strong place at this point. And I think lawmakers know that. And I think that's why there's this push to um, change the threshold for amending the Constitution in August. Yeah, it's it's been a, a really eventful year for abortion. I mean, Michigan passed a reproductive rights measure in 2022 with about 56 percent of their vote. Kansas passed one. I mean, states have gone everywhere from like, you know, full codified constitutional protection to full ban. It's really like run the gambit. And depending on where you live, abortion access now looks wildly different than it did a year ago. Yeah. And, you know, in Ohio, since the Hamilton County Court temporarily blocked the law, as Jesse's story noted, Ohio abortions are kind of back up what to what they were yeah. before Roe was struck down. But, you know, that could change any time now. And 
Meanwhile, you know, in terms of the Midwest, at least, I know, like, Illinois has been um, kind of a destination for abortion access because they have some of the most, the some of the least restrictive laws when it comes to that. So, you know, if Ohio's ban is black in place, Ohioans could have to travel a little ways to get an abortion after six weeks. Our second topic is the rise in threats, harassment, and actual violence at drag events across Ohio and the country. A new report from the Anti-Defamation League and GLAAD showed that drag performances, in particular those advertised for children or as family-friendly, have become the target of neo-Nazi and white supremacist protests. Yeah, I mean, you know, we are seeing this more and more. We've seen this in Ohio. There were neo-Nazis protesting a drag brunch at Land Grant here in Columbus. There was an incident up in Wadsworth, Ohio. It has, as you reported today, you know, it has some of these pride celebrations, especially in small town Ohio and more conservative areas, you know. They're still putting on their events. They don't want to back down, but there is a certain weariness and fear of what could happen when these events go through. Yeah, it's like a really it's a really interesting phenomenon. So I spoke with some folks from the ADL and Ohio State University professor who said that it, you know, I was trying to figure out when drag became associated with grooming and pedophilia, which is what the argument that a lot of these groups are making. And it's not just neo-Nazis that are making this argument. There are conservatives out there like mainstream conservatives and Republicans who make this argument. And it turns out it comes from Florida. Um, it turns out that Governor Ron DeSantis' spokesperson, when they were debating their bill about how you discuss sexuality in classrooms, um, opponents nicknamed it Don't Say Gay. Mm-hmm. And so his uh, press secretary coined the phrase the anti-grooming bill and implied that people who were in opposition to it were grooming your children. And that seems to be where the genesis of this started. And then um, it got put on to drag shows because there's this idea out there that all drag is hypersexualized and there's no drag show that isn't sexual in nature and therefore all drag should be 18 plus. And it's just really interesting to watch something like that move from sort of small fringe beliefs to like mainstream acceptance. Well, and as you noted in your story, that press secretary is now running Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign. So we could see even more of this kind of rhetoric, you know, really hit the national stage. I also, you know, another thing that you see is this belief that all drag queens are transgender, which is just a fundamental misunderstanding of, you know, what it means to be a drag queen and what it means to be transgender. Our third topic is also about the LGBTQ community, but it's about two bills passed in the Ohio House this week that would change how transgender children interact with their schools and their doctors. So this is a little bit of inside baseball as to how this came together, because it's actually like three separate ideas that got combined into two bills. So the first bill focused on parental rights in education. It says parents always deserve more information about their kids, and therefore schools need to disclose any discussions or books that deal with sexuality content, like gender identity or orientation, and teachers have to disclose if a child is questioning their own identity, no exceptions, no room for interpretation. Proponents of this bill say that it really comes down to a parent's right to know a parent should be involved in their children's education. But critics of this legislation say it will specifically target and a word they were using often yesterday is that it would bully LGBTQ 
children and schools. And they also feel like it's going to put teachers in a tough position as to what they can teach, what they can say and talk about. And, you know, to what extent this will affect the teacher-student relationship as well. Yeah, and the other, you know, issue raised by Democrats um, was that, you know, unfortunately not all parents are good parents. Like, we would like to believe that every parent is a good parent. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, teacher discretion to withhold certain information, particularly in cases where they suspect there may be abuse or neglect, is something that teachers do. And removing all discretion for them does put them in an uncomfortable situation. So the original version of this bill said that you couldn't use religion as your only reason, but that you had the discretion to withhold information if you suspected abuse. Or neglect. So there was sort of that caveat. It couldn't just be because somebody was a Christian that you couldn't tell their ki- their parents. But, you know, that got taken out and they just said there shouldn't be any ambiguity that you should always tell the the parent. And that was a real concern is like, at what point it does telling a parent something harm the kid? Yeah, it does. You know, like I said, put teachers in a tricky spot. And isn't there also something in there where they say that concerns about the child's well-being include, you know, if a child at school says they want to be identified by their gender identity. That's yes. Mandatory disclosure. Yeah. And the second bill was actually two bills in one. So the first would ban hormone therapy, puberty blockers and surgery for all transgender minors in Ohio, even though even those currently taking medication. And the second would ban transgender girls from playing on female sports teams in both high school and college. So these were two separate bills. They became one bill and they have now passed the house. So under this medical care bill, the only kind of care that would be allowed is talk therapy, if I remember right. And if a child is already on hormones or, you know, undergoing some other kind of treatment, they're going to have to leave the state to um, continue that treatment. They didn't carve out any exceptions for children who are already undergoing different kinds of treatment. That's correct. And one of the things Democrats pointed out on the floor was they they said they felt that it was a little hypocritical to have these two different pieces of legislation. So the parental rights bill was all about the supremacy of parents in decision making. And they were like, well, what about the supremacy of parents in deciding to say choose hormones or puberty blockers for their child? Right. And then with the transgender athlete bill, I can't remember what the number is or if there even is a number, but there are not that many transgender girls in Ohio playing school sports right now. I believe there's six. Right. So, I mean, out of like well over 100,000 athletes. So, yeah, it is a small, 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 small percentage. Yeah. Which I think, you know, has critics of the legislation saying this is not the, you know, big problem that you claim it is. And our fourth and final topic is medical freedom, specifically the right of doctors to prescribe off-label treatments to their patients. So, Haley, you covered this when it passed the House on Wednesday. Why don't you tell us what it's all about? Yeah, so this is a very kind of inside baseball wonky healthcare bill. I'm going to start by saying it is legal, it is common for healthcare providers to prescribe off-label drugs, which is basically... You know, a drug may I'm and I'm completely making this up because I'm not a doctor, <laughs> but a drug could be used, could be FDA approved to, you know, combat high blood pressure. But a doctor can prescribe it for pain or something. Um, yeah. So like this kind of thing is really common, but it got a lot more attention during the pandemic because of claims that ivermectin and some other drugs, off-label drugs, could treat COVID-19, um, which studies have found that that is not accurate. 
So this bill would codify the ability of providers to prescribe these drugs, but it would also protect them from any kind of backlash from licensing boards if they prescribe these off-label drugs. And it would also require pharmacists to fill the prescriptions unless they have like a religious or ethical objection. But right now, um, pharmacists do have the discretion to not fill a prescription if they choose, and this would take that away. And Democrats supported it in particular, not because of the Invermectin debate, but it, they were pointing out that when, you know, transgender children use hormone therapy, that's often an off-label use of some of the medication. Um, there are certain ways in which abortion drugs are prescribed that are considered technically off-label use. They were they were sort of saying, sure, they, like, but all these other things count, too. Yeah, it was an interesting split on the Democratic side because there were others who opposed it and, you know, were not comfortable with the position that this puts hospitals and pharmacists and um, we'll see what happens with it. It heads to the Senate now. And one more thing before you go. It turns out that Taylor Swift is the bipartisan story we all need this week. Cincinnati area lawmakers Danny Isaacson and Cindy Abrams introduced a resolution to make July 1st Taylor Swift Day in Ohio. No bad blood between those two, I guess. Yeah, um, they both, you know, Danny Isaacson said he's a big fan and she's coming to Cincinnati as part of her heiress tour. And they just thought this was like a fun thing to do. Yeah, I think it's a good lighthearted thing and less fun. As Attorney General Dave Yost pointed out this week, I think uh, be wary of ticket scammers selling you Taylor Swift tickets that seem too good to be true. Oh, yeah. If they're offering them for like under like two, three hundred bucks, it's probably fake. Ohio Politics Explained is brought to you by the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. You can find us on Twitter at Ohio Explained. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we covered, check us out online at any of the newspapers in our network, like IndieOnline.com. That's I-N-D-E online.com. dot com.